Okay, we're going to be in Acts 28 this morning. Lord willing, uh, we're going to finish the book of Acts today, which is kind of kind of weird. It's been, it's been we've been in it for a while, so so you can look over to Acts 28. Um, we're uh, seeing that Paul has finally arrived in Rome. God has been faithful to answer his promise. Paul's there now. Uh, he's been welcomed by a large group of Christians. Which would be pretty cool, you know. You don't know what's going to happen when you get there and see this this huge group of Christians come out to meet you and to you know, to welcome you. Had to have done Paul's heart good because he spent a lot of time on the mission field, not really knowing the fruits of his labor and to see, you know, that the, the gospel has impacted Rome. He wrote a, a letter to this church three years prior to this, and and now these believers are there, you know, benefiting from Paul's ministry. And he gets to see it, and they, they have the Book of Romans. You assume their doctrinal statement, their theology is just like spot on, because it better have been if they had that book. Um, but just like in other places where Paul visited, Rome also had a large Jewish presence. And normally when Paul arrived into a new town, where did he go first? Always went to the synagogue first. Well, this time he's got like, it's not like an ankle bracelet, but it is a Roman soldier uh, chained to him. So he can't just go there. So what he does instead is he invites them to come to his place. It kind of seems like Paul was maybe trying to get the awkward part out of the way, you know, right when he gets to town. That's what I would probably want to do, too. It's like, okay, this is going to be weird. Let's just get this part out of the way. And it always was awkward. Um, the Jewish people have just been kind of hot on the heels of Paul for a long time. They, they want to see him kind of stopped, and, and they're really not going to be satisfied until he's just dead, honestly. That's kind of their, what they'd like to see happen. So Paul assumes as he gets to Rome that word has already gathered before him from the, the Jews in Jerusalem, the leaders there, telling them everything that's gone on. So that's what he's kind of braced for, he's prepared for. And so he's kind of being proactive, like, might as well just get this out of the way, let's just go get this done. So he invites them over, that's where we pick things up in, in chapter 28 and verse 17, which says, after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, Though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So he kind of lays out a summary of everything that's happened over the last couple of years. He maintains his innocence, and he makes sure to tell them, look, I'm not out to get you guys. That's not what I'm doing at all. In fact, he says the reason he's in Rome right now in chains is because of the hope he has for Israel, the hope he has for his, his nation. He loves his brothers and sisters, and he wants all of them to understand that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He wants to see them saved, ultimately. Now, I think, like I said, I think he's, he's already assuming that these guys have heard the other half of the story, and now he's you know, kind of telling his side, so he's kind of bracing for impact. You can almost picture Paul like, okay, he gets done telling him that, he's waiting to hear like, but you defamed the temple, and you did this, and you did that. So he's, he's in that kind of mode, I would guess. But, but look at their response. It's kind of just this anticlimactic, like, oh. Verse 21, and they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. It's like, oh, cool. <laughs> it's like, they basically just say, we don't, we don't know what you're talking about. All that stuff you just said, it's like, yeah, we don't. No. 
That is not how Paul probably saw this playing out in his head beforehand. I don't know if you're weird like me, but I can have full, you know, conversations about a meeting that's going to take place before it happens, and so I'll be like, okay, I walk in, and I'll sit down, and I'll say this, and then they'll say that, and then we'll fight a little, and then this will happen, and then we'll pray again. You know, I mean, I'm just like, and that, you know, I guess how often it goes that way. They never. But you do this kind of thing. It, it reminds me of the story. I love this story. I think it's in Genesis 32 of Jacob and Esau. If you remember that, these are twin brothers. Uh, Jacob completely, uh, I'm trying to think what I'm supposed to say it. Uh, messes over his brother, steals his birthright, and then leaves town. And they haven't seen each other in years. And his brother Esau, if you remember, he's just, just I just picture this big, hairy, scary guy, pretty much. And Jacob, not so much that way. More of a, I don't want to call him a girly man, but, but you, know, you, you kind of get a picture of very two distinct guys in the family that were twins. So, Jacob's coming back now. He has to leave. He's coming back, and he's trying to prepare for this because he's he got to face Esau. He doesn't want to at all. So he tries to do all these things. He plays out these scenarios in his head of how this is going to go. He sends you know, his men forward to let Esau know, hey, Jacob's rich, man. The guy's just he's wealthy, and he's got a lot of stuff right now. So go tell him that first. So they tell him that. They come back and say, okay, what, what, what happened? And we told him that. He has like 400 men with him. <laughs> he's like, what does that mean? You know, that can't be good. So they, and then they're, okay, now go and take a bunch of gifts. And he has, like, three stages of gifts, and he's in the back, you know, and he's, again, just trying to appease Esau. You know, tell him this, and then he'll say this, and when he says this, you guys do that. And he works on this whole thing to try to control the situation. And he plays it up into this big, giant thing. And guess what happens when Esau sees him? He runs toward him. He tackles him. Starts kissing him on the neck, hugging him, and saying, my brother, you're back. He was excited to see his brother. He loved him. He wept. It's like, that's just not how you see it going. God can do amazing things. And we see this with Paul right now. There's no way in the world he thought when he got to Rome, it was going to go this way. You know, what's, what's Caesar going to do to me? What are the Jews going to do to me? And it ended up kind of being a big nothing burger. It's like, he, 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 uh, it's just nothing. It turns out to be like, the, you know, the Jews aren't mad at him. And the Romans basically aren't doing much of anything either. They let him rent an apartment, and they've only got one soldier chained to him. Usually it's two. He's got a ton of freedom. He can have anybody come over and hang out with him. As many people as he wants, as we're going to see in a second. <clears throat> it almost seems like God has orchestrated all of this for good. That's crazy, right? But it almost looks that way. Like God is, has a plan, and he's accomplished it. That's what it seems like has happened. And then what we see now is not only that the Jewish leaders um, are just strangely unconcerned about Paul's past history in Jerusalem, they're also very open to hearing more from Paul, which I can't imagine the look on Paul's face when he hears what they say in verse 22, but I imagine he was pretty happy. Verse 22 says, we don't know, they just say, you know, we don't know what you're talking about, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For we regard the sect... Um, or in regard to the sect, we know everything that it's been spoken evil against. So he's basically saying, you know, we want to, we want to learn more about what you believe, Paul. And I'm sure he kind of, gee, I, I, could, I could make time for that, I suppose. I could fit you into my schedule and, and talk more about the gospel and Christ. They've heard about the Christian sect, but they haven't heard about Paul, which seems a little weird, but that's what they say. And, and they know that this group called The Way is just stirring up. They want to learn more. So they set up an appointment to figure this out. Verse 23 says, When they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. 
and then from morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. This is Paul's dream. I mean, a huge amount of people show up. And I don't know if they knew they were signed up for an all-day seminar, but that's what they got. Uh, morning till evening. Can you imagine being, I mean, I wish this was on YouTube right now. I wish I could go and watch this to see the Apostle Paul come in and just expound the scriptures and talk about the kingdom of God, walk through the Old Testament and show them where Jesus is and all of it would have been amazing. So out of love for his brothers, he toils for hours trying to convince them that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 24 says, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And these are the same outcomes that exist today. People will either believe that Jesus is Lord and respond accordingly, or they won't believe. There's no such thing as just like mild approval. You can't sort of believe and be saved. And I think we don't get that right sometimes today. We think that somebody could be like, you know, there are definitely different stages of unbelief, right? You can be really hostile against it, or you can be like, you know, I'm thinking about it. But you either are desperate for Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Well, Paul makes a statement next that kind of turns out to be the proverbial straw that, that breaks the camel's back, and, and the part is over pretty much instantly. It's like, oh, that went fast. Um, verse 25 says, And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. I love Paul. Listen to what he says. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I will heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. This is another one of those turning points where Paul just says, I tried with you guys. You won't listen. Now we're going to go to them. He doesn't pull any punches, and I like that about Paul. Out of true concern for those who are rejecting Jesus, he pleads with them. And he quotes from the book of Isaiah, which they would have been familiar with. They just never would have applied it to themselves. Isn't that funny how we do that with scripture sometimes? Like, oh, that, that's a great verse. I hear that all the time. Man, I wish someone would have been here to hear that sermon. Or, you know, it's like, no, that was for you too, probably. I'm just guessing. That's how it works with me. When you prepare a sermon like this, by the way, it, it wrecks you first before you, you know, before I can wreck all you guys with me. That's the way it works. So basically, Paul just tells them when it comes to the gospel, they can't hear, they can't understand, they can't see, and they can't even feel because their hearts have become hard and callous toward the Lord. So one of those sad things that I read and I hear and I think, man, I've seen this so many times where somebody just like, this should be such an obvious thing for people to believe and to hear and to respond to, and they don't. I think, what's going on? And it's like this idea of a hard heart to God, to the things of God. People have an opportunity right now to turn and be healed, and they won't. And it baffles me. But God in his grace says, okay, well, I'm going to go to somebody else that will. And that's what we see happening here. Verse 30 kind of sums up everything now by telling us this. It says, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense, 
and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And that is how the book of Acts ends. It's not as weird as Jonah, right? And much cattle. I don't know if you've ever read Jonah, but that's just like, what? And you're like turning the page thinking, that's it? This is another one that you're like, uh, hey Luke, you, for, you forgot the end. It's like, what What about Paul? What about this? What about that? You're looking for like Acts 29, and it's not there. We're going to come back to that at the end. But that is a great question. What, what happened to Paul? I mean, don't you want to know? Look it up. I know, I'm just kidding. I'll tell you. I know, I know, I can't leave you like this. You know, when you read a book, you want to know how it ends, right? If you ever watch a movie, it's just like, you know, the credits start to roll, you're like, this is not right. So I won't do that to you. The truth is, when it comes to Paul, we don't know for sure. We know that he was in Rome for two whole years under house arrest, probably about until AD 62. He wrote several epistles during this time, including some dandies, in my opinion, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Tradition says that he was released, and guess what the Apostle Paul did when he was released? You'll never believe it. He went out, like, on a mission trip and told people about Jesus. I mean, who saw that coming, right? That's what he did. Uh, we don't know exactly where he went, but a lot of people believe that he did finally go to Spain where he really wanted to go. Uh, we, we know that uh, Christianity continued to spread rapidly during his time throughout the Roman Empire. And eventually Paul was arrested again and, and placed under the custody of Nero. And this happened sometime after the Great Fire in, in Rome. Uh, that was in AD 64. If you're not familiar with that, um, Nero blamed the Christians for this great fire, but a lot of people think Nero said it himself because he wanted to, like, redo Rome, and he couldn't get it through Congress, so he thought, well, I'll just burn it, and I'll have it. It was one of those weird things, that's kind of what they said. And it also gave the perfect excuse to persecute Christians more, which he was famous for. If you've never read uh, what Nero did to Christians, I'm not going to talk about it this morning because it's just horrific, but, like, wow, this guy was evil. So Paul this time gets locked up in the, uh, at the Maritime Prison, or Mamertine Prison, sorry, Maritime. So very different things. How would you like to go to Maritime Prison? Mamertine Prison. This is a horrible place, you know, what you picture of cold, dark, rocks, miserable. That's where he went this time. Chances are Peter was in the same prison, even around the same time, potentially. While he was in this uh, prison, Paul wrote First and Second Timothy and Titus. And he was subjected to very harsh conditions. Now, tradition, we don't know exactly when, but tradition tells us that Paul was beheaded by Nero. Um, around the same time, Peter was crucified upside down by Nero. Paul, the difference was Paul's a Roman citizen, and they considered crucifixion to be way too demeaning for a Roman to go through. Uh, just makes you think about, sorry, Jesus. You know, that's what he went through. The most humiliating, embarrassing death. Wasn't Rome wasn't. They were too dignified to go through that. And Jesus hung on a tree for us. Sorry. Okay. It's uh, probably 60 years old or so, Paul was, when this happened. And then just for what it's worth, Nero died uh, by, by suicide around age 30. And that was in AD 68. So we know that Paul died sometime before that. But it is safe to say, regarding Paul, that he continued to proclaim the kingdom of God and teach about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance until his last breath. 
And that's, that's how Luke ends the book. That's what he tells us. This is what Paul was doing, and we know he continued to do it. Okay, so I'm going to look at a few takeaways from the text today. The first thing that I see in this text is this example that Paul left us to follow. In 1 Corinthians 11, 1, Paul said, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And, and this is kind of what we see in the section. We see Paul doing things that he saw Jesus doing, and now we're supposed to do. The three things that I see uh, in, in just in the last two verses of the chapter of the book is that he sacrificed for the good of others, he welcomed all, and he boldly spoke the truth. So the first one we're going to look at is that he sacrificed for others. We see in verse 30, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense. He wanted everyone to know Jesus, and if that many had to suffer, so be it. That's why he's in Rome right now, chained to a guard, paying for his own lodging, for two years. That's why he's been going through this for the last five years, 10 years, 20 years, because of his love for people. In Philippians and in 2 Timothy, uh, both books written during Paul's imprisonment, Paul talks about being poured out as a drink offering. It's kind of an interesting picture, isn't it? I'm being poured out as a drink offering. And really what he's saying, the idea is here that he was willing to be poured out so that others could be filled up. Isn't that a beautiful thing to think about? To me, this would be a very easy time for Paul to be kind of a little self-focused, right? And a little, maybe start to feel sorry for himself. Those are two things that I'm really good at, by the way. Um, Paul's unfairly in chains right now. He's innocent, and he's in chains. He, he could have literally had a pity party, and nobody would really blame him for it. But you don't see that. You see him putting other people's interests first. You see him trusting in these bad circumstances that, that are that come his way and seeing, no, God, God's using these things for opportunity. And so he makes the most of these circumstances. When I think of sacrificing for the good of others, Jesus is the ultimate example of this. He died on a cross so that we could live. He gave everything to win us. And he's our example. Jesus was poured out so that we could live. And right now, we have the opportunity to sacrifice for the good of others in the church and in the community. We can be people like that. Okay, so the second thing that we see in, 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 as far as an example of Paul is that he welcomed all. Verse 30 says, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him. And that sounds pretty easy, right? It's like, well, of course he did, you know? It's like, but, but until you start, really start thinking about the word all, you know, who does all include? Yeah, in the Greek it means all. That means people that don't look like you, people that don't talk like you, people that don't act like you, people that don't think or believe like you do, people who don't vote like you do. Just say it. People who sin differently than you do. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but you know, my sin's not that bad, but boy, their sin. We do that kind of thing, right? He welcomed all people. Now, I don't know what to say, I just turned 53 this week. The older I get, uh, the more I kind of like, I, I understand how hard this could be. I guess I'm just getting grumpy in my old age, maybe, but like I picture myself as like Clint Eastwood in that movie where he's like, you know, get off my lawn with it, you know, you young pups, you know, I feel, I feel more like that all the time. I don't know why it's happening, but it just, I, I feel that way a lot. 
And so when I, you know, I look at, you know, I'd, I'd like to throw a brick at that person is what I'm thinking in my head all the time. Not, oh, I'd like to welcome them to, and, and yet, this is how Paul lived. And, and this, this couldn't have been easy. I mean, he was welcoming his enemies. And think about this. The Jewish people wanted to see him dead. And he's welcoming them. You're my enemy, but I welcome you. <laughs> the Roman soldiers, the Roman government, that they're his enemies. He's chained to, to, I mean, to different guys, but 24-7, he's chained to these, these different people. Can you imagine that soldier that being, you know, just chained to the Apostle Paul? I don't know what their shifts were like, you know, how long it was. It was eight hours. But these guys heard the gospel a lot, I would guess. And, and this was a long time, two years. You know, they would just kind of rotate through the, the regiment. And so it's like, I want you, you know, who do you got this week? Ah, Paul. You know, like, you know, just chained to him. Oh, my God. Just repent and believe already. You know, just give up. But, but think about that, you know. Are you, are you willing to meet and welcome your enemies as well? The people that you don't necessarily like? Paul did. That's it. He's our example. He took advantage of who God had him chained to, right? Who, who has God put in your path? Welcome them into your lives. Jesus is the ultimate, ultimate example of someone who welcomed everyone, including you and me. Thank you, Lord that you welcomed someone like me. I still can't believe that I get to be called his child, God's child, Jesus' friend, that I get to sit at his table as a family member. That doesn't make any sense, but it's because he welcomed me. And ultimately, we want to welcome others to see him come into the kingdom of God. We should literally be the most welcoming people on the planet. And we should show kindness, and graciousness to everyone, but we must also follow Paul's next example, and that is he spoke the truth frankly and freely. So it says that he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. So that means Paul was willing to say hard things to people, even when he knew it would cost him greatly. And I think I think we like to pretend that the reason Paul was able to do that was because it was easier for him than it is for us. You ever do that? That's Paul. I mean, yeah, sure, Paul. You know, <laughs> but what do you see in Paul's life that makes you think it was easier for him? I mean, it's just kind of silly when you really think about it. Nothing was easy for Paul. Does any of it? I mean, he was in a more hostile environment than we are. He, he was in a more corrupt environment than we are. And he was in greater danger than we are. I had a long shot. And yet he remained, remained committed to preaching salvation by grace through faith, even when it wasn't popular and even when it got in trouble. Paul's motivation wasn't to argue with people or to conquer people. I mean, sometimes I think, you know, there's people out there that they go out to share the gospel because they just like to argue and fight and, and all that. But I don't see that with Paul. I see his motivation being that he cared about them. So not only did he speak the truth, but he spoke the truth in love, which is what Jesus wants to do. You gotta combine those two. That's like the chocolate and the peanut butter. You gotta have them both, right? You get better that way. Otherwise, it doesn't work so good. So we need to be welcoming on one hand and willing to say hard things to people on the other. And we live in a day when you can't do this. I don't know if you've noticed that, but it's like you can't, if you have a differing opinion than somebody else, it's just bad right now. It's weird, isn't it? 
I don't remember, I don't know when it changed or what happened exactly, but you know, it's this idea that tolerance, that's what we, we call it, it's called tolerance, I guess, but but we we call it, it's almost like the greatest virtue in society right now, but they redefined completely what it means. You know, now what tolerance means is not like you have to welcome me and accept me, but you have to agree with me completely and validate me completely. Well, that's not what tolerance is. It's like, look it up. That's not even close to what it means. It means that I'm willing to, to spend time with you and welcome you and accept you, even though I disagree with you. That's the difference. And as a Christian, I can completely disagree with your beliefs and your lifestyle, but still show you kindness and love and respect. That's what tolerance is. There should be a way for us to reach across the table to somebody who's completely different than us and find you know, a way to talk to them, communicate, and be friendly without accepting what they do. And that's what I see Paul doing here. And I think that's our example. Jesus is the ultimate example of someone who loved people and accepted people. Look at some of the people that he hung out with. And yet, he spoke the truth boldly and without hindrance when it, when it came to where they stood with God. And there's a way for us to do that. You know, just love people in that way. We're living in a time when, when, when having a different viewpoint makes you the bad guy. That means it's going to be harder for us to speak the truth. But we have to do it anyway, because what's at stake ultimately? When we're talking about eternity, is that, are we really going to stop short of telling somebody what they need to hear? I hope not. So when I think about, like, what was Paul so fired up about? You know, why, why was he speaking... So what was he speaking so boldly and freely about? Verse 31 tells us that, that he was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And those two things go hand in hand, by the way. But the truth is we talk about Jesus a lot, but I, we don't probably talk about the kingdom of God as, as much. And I think that's because the kingdom of God is kind of hard to fully comprehend. I don't know if you, you know, when you try to think about that, it, it's, it's, a, it's a weird topic because it's one of those things that's now and not yet. You know what I mean? So if I were to ask you the question, is the kingdom future or is it now? The answer would be yes. That's like, well, huh? So yeah, you know, let's not talk about that because I don't even know what I just said. Right? That's how we think about it sometimes. What is the kingdom of God? A kingdom refers to a territory and a people that a king reigns over. Right? We all know that. So the kingdom is God's reign through God's people over God's place. Again, I think we can kind of get that. And, and there's a sense like what Psalm 103, 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. There's a sense in which we understand that because we know that God is the creator and therefore he rules over all of his creations, always in charge in one sense. And we, and we know that. But there's going to be a time when he is visibly reigning over a literal kingdom. And that's still future. There's going to be a time when Jesus sits on the throne and, and, and we live in that kingdom if, if we're believers. That one has not yet been fully realized. That's the one we're still eagerly waiting for. So it was inaugurated at the cross when Jesus rose from the dead, when he ascended to the Father, the kingdom started. But it won't be fully consummated until he comes back. So we're in this kind of time between the times where we're kind of enjoying the kingdom and kind of waiting for it. <clears throat> and that's the other aspect that we see happening right now as far as his kingdom goes. God is reigning individually through the hearts of his people and collectively through his church. Get that? 
So through preaching the gospel, people are being gathered into the kingdom of God, right, and part of the church. As citizens of this kingdom, we have a responsibility then to make the invisible kingdom visible. You know, when Jesus in the Lord's Prayer, he told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It, it, it's in part talking about this. And yeah, we want his kingdom to come, but even right now, we want to see his kingdom come. People should see the reality of Jesus' kingdom in this place because God dwells and reigns among us. This is a different kingdom than the kingdom of the world. I, I can't stress this enough because I think we, I see so many Christians disillusioned right now because they've mixed up the kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, there's the kingdom of man. They're two different kingdoms. The church is where we are going to see the reality of the kingdom of God much more so. Sure, we get glimpses of it in the world, but this place should look different than everything else. You know, the Bible, it talks about like we're a city on a hill. I like that picture. Just this like a city on a hill with different people, different zip code, a different town. It looks different. It acts different. It has a different hope, a different future. Everything about it is different, and it should be so obvious. It should be marked by love more than anything else. I mean, even Jesus said that. Hey, you know how people are going to know you're my people? By the way you love one another. And that's what the city on the hill should look like. It should be filled with people that love each other and that love others. This is why we need to be in community together. This is why we need to be committed to each other within the body and the family of Christ. This is why our testimony and the way we live our lives matters so much. Citizens of Christ's kingdom should follow, obey, and exalt the king in everything we do. We are the visible manifestation of his kingdom on earth. So our presence in this community matters. The way we live our lives matters. The way we treat people out there matters. And I love, for the most part, I think, you know, unless people aren't telling me the truth, that we have a good reputation in this community. People think of the door as like a giving community, you know, generous, kind, that kind of thing. We want to maintain that in the way we treat people, in the way we live our lives. Why did Paul feel the need to go on and on about this kingdom? Why is it important for us to talk about? If I were to ask you, to, for like just what words would you use to describe, like if you could choose a word to describe the kingdom of God, the way you think, well, what would be some of the words? You guys could say something right now, actually. Salvation. Salvation. Forgiveness. Forgiven. Everlasting. Peace. Everlasting. How's, it, how's this one sound? Unshakable. <laughs> I like that. Unshakable. Glory. Glory. Yeah. Perfect. Non-denominational. Non-denominational. <laughs> That's good. Right? Every tribe, tongue, nation. Perfect. Sinless. No, no viruses. <laughs> Virus-free. I mean, why should we talk about the kingdom? Because it is our hope. It's the best thing. We're going to have a king and a kingdom that is everything we've ever longed for and stuff we didn't even realize we wanted and needed. So everything you hate about this world right now will be gone. I mean, I want this kingdom to come. And in one sense, it's here now, within this place, because God dwells with his people. He reigns in our hearts. That's the way it should look. And in another sense, it's something that we look forward to. Invest in that kingdom. 
Invest everything you have in that kingdom. Go out in the highways and the byways. That's, that's the way they used to say it in the King James. And plead with people to come into the kingdom. You can come in by simply believing that Jesus is who he said he is and that he did what he said he did. God sent his son into the world to die on behalf of sinners, to live this life that we could never have lived, a life of perfection to please God, and then to go and die on behalf of us. And what we're doing is we're trusting that I'm going to give him my sin, and he's going to, he's going to take care of that, and he's going to give me his righteousness so that I can live before God and become part of his kingdom. That's, that's a, by faith, you believe that. You believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and what it accomplished for you. Now, there's one more thing I want to talk about beforehand. I told you I was sort of back to this, and that's just the idea of, you know, hey, Luke, how does it end? You know, where's Acts 29? Why isn't it here? I don't think it was just an oversight by Luke to end the book abruptly like this, without any closure. Because, in truth, this book isn't about Paul. That's why he's like, I'm not going to, I don't need to tell you, it's not about Paul. It's about the church. It's about the Holy Spirit, the acts of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we call it the acts of the apostles. It's really the acts of the Holy Spirit. Guess who's still at work today? The Holy Spirit. The reason there's no real end to this chapter is because there's no real end to this chapter until Jesus comes back. This story is still being written. So that, so Acts 29 is like, now. And we get to be a part of it. How crazy is that to think about? Each one of us right now can be written into this story in the way that, you know, in the way that we live. So a lot of times I think we just look at this and we see like, man, the apostles were great, man, that was cool, I like that. You know, good for them. And then we close the book and think, that was neat. I wish they were still around. It's like, well, you know what? I mean, we're not, there's no capital apostles here, but we are still around and we all still have work to do. And the truth of the matter is, Jesus said he's waiting till the last person believes before he comes back. So the quicker we get this done, you guys, the quicker we get it done, right? <laughs> All right. Father, we, we are, uh, we're thankful for the book of Acts and for all that it contains. We're thankful that you have invited sinners into your kingdom. Lord, it doesn't make any sense, but we're grateful that, that you are a God who loves and that, that provided a way for us to come to you and have a relationship and to have an eternity with you. We're excited, Lord, about not only what you've given us to do here and now, but what, 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 uh, what our future holds, Lord, and what this kingdom is really going to be like when it's fully realized. Give us hope, Lord. Give us the, the desire to, to plead with others, Lord, to come into this kingdom and to meet you, maybe for the first time. And even today, Lord, search the hearts of your people and, and help them to understand, Lord, where they stand with you truly. And if they've never fallen on their knees before you and just <laughs> submitted to you as Lord, may they do that today, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.